0: Good morning, morning. if you would take your Bibles and go with me to Nehemiah chapter 7, let's pray. God, as much as I've thought through this chapter, I still feel really unprepared. I know for a fact, Lord, that today... There are people in this room that do not know you as Savior. I pray, pray God, that there would be today a great intersection between unregenerate hearts and your mighty Holy Spirit. And all that coming from a text that doesn't seem like it'll preach. But I thank you for it. I thank you, Lord, for your word. So make us ready. Open ears and hearts to the gospel of your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so Nehemiah seven, beginning in verse five. Before we jump into the text today, I just want you to know that we are going to do uh we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see the difficult union, the, the the marriage of two unlikely partners. Uh the first partner is is expository preaching. And the second partner is genealogy. <laughs> uh, let me define those things so that we're all on the same page. Um, expositional preaching. Uh, the word exposition. I thought I'd be really creative and try to uh I'll look this up in the dictionary. And, uh, wow you with some definition and, and it just really humbled me because the word exposition just has, it's mostly the word expose. <laughs> like, okay, so uh, exposure or exposing something, in fact the definition is to expose something hidden. So in other words, we're going to take things that are not normally seen and we're going to bring them to light. That's expositional preaching. We are committed to that at Ramsey Creek. Uh, every word of Scripture is inspired by God. Every, every word that is inspired by God has meaning for believers. Expositional preaching forces us to look at the chapter we're going to look at today. Expositional preaching makes us, makes the congregation better students of the word. Because we have to look at passages we would just rather not look at. Genealogy. Again, thought I'd be really, really creative and come up, you know, look for a definition that was wowing. And, uh, again, I, I'm humbled because the prefix in genealogy is the same word as Genesis. <laughs> Beginnings. Have you, it's not complicated stuff, is it? So, genealogy is just simply the the study of origins. Where did we come from? Um, who 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 are, who, are our, who, who did we descend from? Um, so, we most of us find this dreadfully boring because uh, it has nothing to do with what we're going to eat for lunch. So, yet it's here in Nehemiah chapter 7. So we're going to take today, we're going to take a God-centered form of preaching, expositional preaching, and we're going to wed it to a man-centered chapter in the Bible. And of course, God is the, the main character, but this is all a humongous list of names. So, um, so uh, a couple of things to um, mention before we begin reading this. Uh, we have Moms in the room that are uh on the verge of having babies, I just want to encourage you as we read. This is a great baby name chapter. It just is. So um, as you listen along, you know, maybe maybe try to consider helping some of these moms with some of these names. I'm going with backbuck. That's in this chapter, backbuck. Can you imagine naming a boy Backbuck? That's awesome. Also, um, I just want to 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 um, to put a plug in for Pastor Rod, um, the last time I preached, I preached Psalm one nineteen, and today I'm preaching a genealogy. And I just want you to know that Pastor Rod is not a chicken. Um, he's not telling me, Jason, I don't, I don't want to preach these hard texts. You do it, okay? I'm volunteering to to do these, and uh, I'm, I like. And I know it's weird, but I I, I like going through hard texts, and so. Uh, That's what we're doing today. Um, Don't think poorly of Rod. All right, so um, (laughs) Nehemiah 7, beginning in verse 5, all the way to the end of the chapter. So here we go. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Naamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispreth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. The, the number of the men... Of the people of Israel, the sons of Peros, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Era 652, the sons of Peaf Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zattu, 845, the sons of Zachai, 760, the sons of Binui 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,322. Uh, the sons of Ad- Adonikam, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Aden, 655, the sons of Adder, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Bezai 324, the sons of Heraph, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem, and uh, I, I had to pencil in a little here, is it Natofa, <laughs> I hope, uh, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Keriath-Jerim, Jephira, and Beeroth 743, the men of Ramah and Giba 621. The men of Mikmas, 122. The men of Bethel and I 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. seven twenty one, The sons of Senea, 3,930. The priests, the son of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973 the sons of Emer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Harem, 1,017 the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely Cadmiel of the sons of Hodeva, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatida, the sons of Shobai, 138, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesufa, the sons of Taboth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hageba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gadel, the sons of Gehar, uh, that sounds like Garrett, kind of. Garrett just, you know. The sons of Riaiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Mayunim, the sons of, this one sounds like a disease, Nefushism, Nefushism. Can you imagine, ended up, you know, like, hey, the doctor says you've got Nefushism? Nefu Nefuca Sim, I think is how. Anyway, sorry. The sons of Bakbok, There it is. Back Buck. That's it. That's I like that one right there. It's good. Write that down. The sons of Hakufa. The sons of Herher, The sons of Basilith, The sons of Mahida. The sons of Harsha. The sons of Barkos. The sons of Sistra, The sons of Tima. The sons of Naziah. The sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sofret, the sons of Peridah, the sons of Jeala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gideel, the sons of Shaphatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokareth, Hazabam, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer, but they could not prove their father's houses, nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah. Notice next. The sons of Tobiah. The sons of Nakoda 642. Did you guys catch that? Now, here's the deal. Let me, let me pause for a second. This is, a, this is a freebie, okay? Who is Tobiah? He's the bad guy, one of the bad guys. Now, is this the same Tobiah as the bad guy in the previous chapters? That's the question that I've found myself asking when I came to that name. And I, I looked in three different Bible dictionaries, and one only referenced the bad guy. Uh, one said that the guy in the genealogy here is different than the Tobiah in the rest of the book of Nehemiah, and one of them said what I suspected, and that is that if you stop and think about the Tobiah who's the bad guy in the, in all the chapters before, that Tobiah, as we read just last week back in chapter 6... Um, Verse 17, moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son of Era, on and on. And verse 19, also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. And we get to this genealogy, and I think, maybe, if this is the same guy, we realize why he's doing that. See, on the one hand, in fact, Rod pointed this out, that the people aren't always as they seem. On one hand, he's writing letters to incite fear in Nehemiah, and on the other hand, he's got this this front to everybody else that makes him look really good. And I think he was doing that because he knew who he was. And the one guy who was going to mess it all up was Nehemiah. Oh, that's my suspicion. Whew, and we needed to break from all that. All right, verse 63. Also of the priests, the sons of Heboah, Ho- Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who this is interesting, had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. So here's a guy who's not an Israelite, but he marries a Jewish woman and takes her name on in order to be Jewish. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. And by the way, we don't have any record that that ever happened. Verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female, their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6720, just in case you needed to know. Now, some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 50 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And that is what's going to launch us there into chapter 8 next week. So, Genealogies. Uh, let me make a few points, and then we're going to dive into this um, more deeply. So, first, genealogies bridge books of the Bible. Genealogies are like links in a chain, okay? So if you notice, actually, at the beginning of of this genealogy, or I'm sorry, in verse 5 here, uh. The middle of verse five, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it and then he proceeds to basically quote this genealogy. So this, this genealogy that, that is here is connected to the, the exile. You guys remember the, the timeline here? Uh five eighty-six, Nebuchadnezzar, really bad king, comes in with his army. He takes over Judah, and he takes over the city of Jerusalem, and he disperses the people out. But they have a record, this is the record, um, one of many actually, of their of, of their genealogy. So so what's happening in Nehemiah a hundred plus years later, is now being connected back to what happened in 586 BC? Who was one of the major prophets during that period of time when, when the Babylonian army came in? Anybody know? He was a major prophet. That narrows it down to four. Jeremiah. Jeremiah interacted with, uh, actually I don't know the name, uh, his, J- Jeremiah's a lot, several of his prophecies were pointed Directly at the king of Judah at that time. You guys know that the nation of Israel, after a guy named Solomon, split into two. You have the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And where did the southern kings... Where did they come from? What? They came from David. Hmm. So now we, we're gonna connect, uh, the, the exile and that genealogy to the, the kings, back to Jeremiah and, and, and the kings that he interacted with. And all of those kings came from David. And so that, that then connects us to Second Chronicles. It connects us to Second Kings. Books of the Bible. In fact, I realized this week when I was studying that the kings, the 1st the, the and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they're genealogical books. Because it's one king, he reigned for 40 years and his son took over. And then he reigned for 20 years and his son took over. And it's, it's genealogy. So we, we follow that line of kings all the way back to David. Now, another Bible question. Who was David's? Great-grandma. Ruth, that's right. Uh, Ruth and Boaz lived in what period of time in Israelite history? The judges. Mm. Now, when did the judges uh, start ruling in Israel? It was after the death of somebody. You guys remember? Joshua. And Joshua was the right-hand man to who? There's genealogical links for all of those things throughout the scripture. So now we can take Nehemiah a hundred years after the, the exile and we can connect him all the way back to Moses. Which then, of course, connects us to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Adam. Genealogies act as links in a chain But right along with this, genealogies also tether us as readers to real history. This is not, a lot of religious books have morals and and teachings and bits of wisdom and what we're reading what what it seems as we study the scripture is not just hey here's a moral story you should learn from this and try to do better it's it's a it's historical account and those genealogies are mixed into this to remind us these these are real people these these things really happened and a third thought here on genealogies is that genealogies Validate claims of inclusion. Are you, are you with me? Somebody gets up and says, I'm a part of that group. Okay, let me validate that with the genealogy. That's actually what ha- what's happening in this chapter. Malachi, the very last prophet to write in Israel. Tax a period, well they didn't use periods, but you get the idea. Tax a period on the end of his last sentence and puts his pen down. And over 400 years later, somebody else picks up a pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and begins to scribe scripture. What is the first thing that we read when we get to the New Testament, the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew picks up the pen, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very first thing that you will read when you come to the New Testament is a genealogy. Why is that so important? A genealogy reminds us that God... Keeps his word. I promised you. The seed of Abraham. I promised you. A Davidic king. Jesus. Your Messiah. And your king. Proven. In a genealogy. Of st- The earliest critics of Christianity never, ever debated the lineage of Jesus. They didn't dispute his existence. You can't. And the genealogy proves that. So these accounts, as hard as they are to read... I can testify, hard enough to understand, they carry massive weight for us as we study the scripture. So, in this particular genealogy, we see it starting out with something that is, Nehemiah is, has a desire to, to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people. Um, that that word assemble means to gather together. And, it, and, and in the Hebrew, it's it, the idea is to gather objects into one place. It doesn't matter whether it's sheep or goats or whatever, or people. It's, it's moving them all to one location. That's what Nehemiah wants, okay? And he wants to do this so that he can enroll the people by genealogy. And I don't know as if that's a very... Uh, <sighs> Enrollment just sounds like you put your name on a piece of paper, okay? Um, I need somebody from the Brown clan over here to read from the King James version the first half of that because I know you guys are all KJV. I know, I know. There's no hiding. Can you re- do you mind reading uh verse 5 about halfway down? The first half. Yeah. I think. That's it. Did you hear that word? Reckoned, <laughs> I like that word. We don't use it in in our. We don't use that anymore, do we? And when's <laughs> I reckon not? <laughs> uh So here's here's okay. So I'm I'm tr- I'm trying to figure out how do I uh, when do we hear that word used? And so this is what I th- well, this is what I came up with. Are you ready? Everybody with me? Everybody know exactly what you know what I'm talking about. All right. I picture. Two old farmers, that's what they're doing. Holding on to their bibs. Everybody knows they're holding. On. You guys have seen this. You've been in MFA. They hold their hold their they're, they're hugging their bibs. And they're looking at a piece of farm equipment that is broken. Right? One of them proposes a solution. And the other looks at the one and says, I reckon (laughs) that's that's, like when I think of that word, that's that's what comes to mind. And and what so from the floor, what in the world does that farmer mean when he says, I reckon? Yeah, I think so. That's that's got to be the solution, right? So he is. So that word that carries with the it's not just uh, I don't I just I'm, I'm enrollment just doesn't to me reckon makes sense. He's, he's, he's reckoning the people to the genealogy. He's, he's trying to settle the account. He is trying to, uh, uh, the, the idea of reckoning is accepting something as certain, bringing them, them together and making sense out of them. So this, by the way, is what's going to happen in chapter eight. The people are going to get together. Um, so what Nehemiah is wanting here is he wants the list the genealogy, to reflect the actual gathering and vice versa. He wants the actual gathering to reflect the list. Okay? Not complicated, is it? Now, why would he want this? Why would Nehemiah want to reckon the group of people with the list? If I were to ask you, um, what is... When I when I when I say what is the book of Nehemiah about, generally, more than likely, we would all shout with the children on chapter three, right? Build the wall. Build the wall. That's when we think of Nehemiah. It's synonymous with build the wall. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. I mean, it it, it did happen. The wall was built. But as Rod pointed out last week, um, kind of as matter of factly as Nehemiah can do. Uh, in verse 15 of chapter 6, oh, so the wall was finished. <laughs> well, we're only halfway through this book. And the wall's already done. So what's what's actually driving Nehemiah? Go back to chapter 1. I was listening to, and in fact, again, Rod, I think, was pointing this out last week pretty clearly. Um, but I was listening to D.A. Carson um, this week, and he he brought out several things in light of this, but um, chapter one, verse one, uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. What's Nehemiah so concerned about? Is he concerned that the pile of rocks that go around the city isn't high enough? No. His primary concern is for the people. Chapter 5, we saw. Uh, again, Rod mentioned that as far as the chronology where this fits, we don't know for sure. Um, chapter 5 uh in the midst of building the wall, Nehemiah drops this account in here where the Jews uh, that were uh better off were not taking care of the Jews that weren't better off. Now why would he deposit that in the middle of swords and trowels and the bad guys and the building of the wall and all the all the details that had to go into that? Because Nehemiah really did care about the people. What Nehemiah is attempting to do here is not rebuild a city. His goal is to rebuild the community of faith. So the wall, the temple, the which the temple was Zerubbabel and Ezra in the book previous. So uh, the wall, the temple, the organization of the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites and the priests all through this genealogy being brought up we're just a means to the end of rebuilding the community of faith. Matthew Henry, in his commentary uh, uh, in uh, First Chronicles, if that's another one, in fact, you can almost—if you're looking for baby names—go there. Um, there are several chapters of of genealogy, um, but in his commentary on the first chapter of First Chronicles, he points out that. These genealogies were of great use when they were here preserved and put into the hands of the Jews after their return from Babylon. For the captivity had put all into confusion and they, in that dispersion and despair, would be in danger, listen closely, they would be in danger of losing the distinctions of the tribes and families. This, therefore, revives the ancient landmarks. Nehemiah desperately wanted the people not to forget where they came from and who they came from. So what Nehemiah was concerned with the most was the preservation of the worship of the one true God. Now, here's the deal. Nehemiah was a gifted administrator. Gifted. We heard that last week. Think about this. If you can get politicians and their children to build a wall in 52 days, (laughs) you got a gift. You just do. So was this... Was this just uh, uh, Nehemiah exercising his gift of administration? I mean, guys, we do have uh, the inclusion of horses, mules, camels, and donkeys. Where did Nehemiah get this idea? Notice again, verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. This whole notion of reconciling the current group of people with the list and the list being current with the people was God's idea. Now... That leads to another question. Why in the world would God be so interested in a genealogical list? Why would God be interested in keeping tabs on who is and who isn't part of the group? The answer is found in 61 through 65, mostly 64. Listen to That verse again, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So um, the reason why Nehemiah was interested in this was because God was interested in this, and the reason God was interested in this was because God cares about inclusion and exclusion from his people. Who belongs, who doesn't belong. By the way, this is not God being mean. We have a an answer for this in 64. They, again, they sought their registration among those enrolled in, in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. God cares, as it's reflected here, in the purity of the congregation. Of course, that reflects on us that God cares about the purity of the church. The church is an organism before it's an organization. I mean, there is organization necessary, but we're a living, breathing thing. And when you take something that's living and breathing, and you introduce something that's unhealthy, then that's going to reflect in the body. Or if the body, uh, something from inside the body comes up, uh, as a disease, it needs to be removed for the sake of the body. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to hang out with cancer for very long. It's not going to go well for you. The church is a body. It's not a business. Now, that's the quick answer. That, that, that's maybe the easy answer. But the reality is we need to probe a little bit deeper on why this is so important to God. And and to answer that question, we really need to consider the character of God. So, God is holy. That means that in all aspects of his person, and what that means is that if God chuckles, that was a holy chuckle. You understand what I'm saying? Like everything about Him is holy. And He's not just the, the most perfect being. God is perfection. Okay? And because He's perfection, because He is holy, He's sinless. God never sins. He is the, He is a perfectly moral being. And because he's moral. And because he's holy. He's also righteous. And by righteousness we mean that he declares what is true. He declares what is right. He declares what is not true. And what is not right. He is the rule maker. He is righteous. But. He's not just The declarer, he's not only the declarer of what is right and true, he is based on holiness and righteousness, he is just. So he doesn't just talk about righteousness, he acts on righteousness. If God did not execute justice... Then he would not be a moral being. And therefore, he would not be God. God must, by his nature, act on what is right. And therefore, because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he is just, God must Draw a distinction between what is holy and what is unholy. What is righteous, what is unrighteous, what is clean, what is unclean. And the trickle down is for us. Are we holy or are we unholy? Are we righteous or are we unrighteous? Are we clean or are we unclean? Are we His or are we not? The problem is that we're guilty of sin and God is holy. In a hundred million years of eternity, God will never, ever compromise his holiness. And there's not a person here that can ever undo what we've done. You can't ever go back. You have broken the law of God. And there's no redos and no mulligans and no do-overs. It's done. And you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Even if nobody else in this room has any idea, you know full well you can't go back. You can't change it. We have to stand before a holy God, sinless in perfection. So how in the world... Does a wicked person and holy God reckon with one another? Here's how. God moves. The Bible says that every single person in this room is dead in their trespasses and their sins. Jesus says that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Slaves don't walk away. So God takes the initiative. God grants his own righteousness to those who come to him by faith. Those who belong are those who, to borrow Martin Luther's phrase, are granted Alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that is not your own. It was given to you. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died in your place as a substitute sinner and even though he had never sinned, his death satisfied the justice of God and the wrath of God and now you by faith are declared holy. You are righteous. You, the one who has things in your past that you know you can't undo, and you are now holy before the holy God. You are in, not out. Nehemiah's exclusion of those who claimed Jewish roots but were not actually Jews reflects the heart of God. Almost done. Application. Hmm. Number one. Never, never underestimate the written record. I'm going to say one sentence and then I'm going to build on that sentence. So here we go. Everything we need to know about Jesus. Is preserved in the written record. Everything we need to know about Jesus. In order to be saved. Is preserved. In the written record. Everything we need to know about Jesus. In order to be saved. And actually know we are saved. Is preserved in the written record. Same author, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. A Christianity divorced from the Bible is not Christianity. It's not. Second. Nehemiah's genealogical reckoning has major implications for us 2500 years later. Did the, did the writers of the New Testament, did the, uh, the movers and shakers in the early church, did they keep lists? You don't have to turn there. In fact, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, you make your way there. And while you're turning there, um, there is a passage, uh, one that is not talked about very often. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5. And there's lengthy instructions on how to take care of widows. And Paul says... Don't enroll a widow unless she's over the age of 60, you know, wife of one husband, took care of her children, a woman of integrity, but of need. Put her on the list. Enroll her. Younger widows? Don't enroll them. And then he gives reasons for why. Did they keep lists? Yes. Another, maybe more potent and important. Just let's follow the the argument in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That's gross. (laughs) And you, the Corinthians, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Wait, hold on. How can you remove somebody from something that there's no inclusion to? How do you remove somebody from someone from something that can't be removed from something that doesn't exist. Logical conclusion. Verse three, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Sounds harsh. What does Paul care about? Purity of the church. And the salvation of the sinner. Well, that's not very nice. We should just let them, we should just let them do their thing and no, keep following. Verse six, your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, that you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. One lump, one body needs to stay pure. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. You, you know what, there's, a, there's been a lot of people in Christian history who think that being that living a hermit lifestyle and going living on a mountain away from all of this ungodliness is the right thing to do. And the answer is no, that's not Right? You go hang out with other hermits, I guarantee you somebody's going to be sexually immoral. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And that's not just... A meal, that's, we're talking about, for for Paul, that was almost always a reference to the Lord's Supper. We don't share in the communion of saints with somebody who is not walking with Christ. Then he throws this chestnut at us, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Purge the evil person from among you. It's so ingrained in Paul that he assumes there are those inside and there are those outside. There are those that are clean and that there are those that are unclean. Flip over to Second Corinthians a few pages later, chapter two, second Corinthians two, verse five. The uh the assumption by a lot of scholars is what we're about to read. Uh the the, the, the man that Paul is about to reference here is the guy from First Corinthians five, who is immoral. So just follow along. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the who? By the majority is enough. That means that Paul, again, assumes there's a majority and a minority. There's... If this is the same guy, they read chapter five of first Corinthians and the majority said, we got to do something about this because Paul said we need to. If we care about this man's soul, we need to do something. And there was a minority, assumedly, that said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, guess what? Majority wins. Well, how do you have a majority of minority? How do you have an in and out if there's no in and out? Holiness matters. It is what is granted to us in Christ. Righteousness matters. It's what's given to us in Christ. It is our responsibility to do something about and hold each other accountable within the body of Christ. Listen to Paul again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then he he hits us with this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. My caring about and holding you accountable and you holding me accountable reflects what we're reading here in Nehemiah. So it leads to my last point here do we care more about christ and his reputation or about the feelings of people who are offending christ by the fruit that they bear do we care more about christ and his reputation Or about the feelings of people who are offending Christ by the fruit that they bear. Let's pray. Listen to the words of John. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth And sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Lord Jesus, that is your judgment. You don't turn a blind eye to our sin. You don't pretend that it doesn't exist as much as we try to pretend that it doesn't exist. There is a day coming, and it's going to be a great separation. Sheep, goats, good fish, bad fish, wheat, tares. Those who are ready and waiting and those who say they're ready and waiting but aren't ready and aren't waiting. Those who exercise obedience with what you've given with the talents. And those who bury what you've said in the sand. It will be those who on your right hand love the people of God who will enter into your joy and those on the left who just never had time and didn't pay any attention. Lord, when did we see you in need? You didn't do it to my brothers. Depart from me. What scares me, God, For those that are here that do not know you as Savior, rescue, rescue, rescue God. Take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. Cause them to walk in obedience to your commands. Oh, and today that they would find the joy and the peace that we just sang about a little bit ago, Because their eyes have been opened to their sin and their great need. And your amazing love for them. That love that took you to the cross. You are glorious. You are amazing. Thank you, Lord, for this genealogy in Nehemiah. In Jesus' name, amen.